Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Daisy Elise Williams, newly promoted Associate Professor of Architecture at the University of Oregon. Williams specializes in architectural visualization and teaches in the architecture program's media curriculum in addition to coordinating first-year studios. Williams is committed to investigating and increasing African-American presence and participation in architectural education. She has conducted research on the early history of architectural education at historically black colleges and universities. Williams also writes about the career of Paul Revere Williams, the first African-American member of the American Institute of Architects and one of California's most prolific architects. Williams has participated in two NEH summer institutes to support research on the Digital Humanities Project entitled Freedom's Fortress. Thank you so much, Daisy, for coming on the show and congratulations on the promotion. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So why don't we start um, with your background. Tell us um, a little bit about yourself and what led to your career in architecture and in particular in academic architecture. Sure, I mean, I, I think it was, I became interested in architecture in a very indirect route, I would say. Probably not, maybe not uncommon for a lot of African Americans who are, who become involved in the profession. So originally when I was in college, I thought I would become a doctor. Um, and so I was a biology major, <laughs> but my entire life, my parents always supported my hobbies and one of my major hobbies was drawing. <laughs> and so I was always drawing and always uh, representing my ideas and my thinking visually. And once I got to college, I realized that there has to be something better for me. And so I sort of, uh, architecture students tend to spend all night in the studio. <laughs> so I had a really good friend who was an architecture student and you know, in the middle of the night, I would go, what are you doing? And I would go into the studios and mm. I would see the drawings that they were making and the models they were making. And I couldn't believe that this is what their homework was. <laughs> <laughs> this is what people were studying seriously, um, using these visual tools to, to, to design the environment, the built environment. And so I was hooked ever since and changed my major. So what made you decide to become an academic architect rather than a you know, an architect in the private sector? So while I was a graduate student at Florida A&M University, I had the wonderful opportunity to be uh, a sort of a, a, a graduate uh, teaching assistant, if you will. It's sort of what we call them here. And so that sparked my interest in teaching. And I realized how rewarding it was and how absolutely um, important it was working with students. And so that that's began my sort of shift there. And then after FAMU, I went on to Hampton University to teach there. So I know that from your experiences, you've become very interested in the comparative lack of African Americans in the architecture profession. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about why that's the case. Why is architecture a, a profession that doesn't have a lot of African American architects practicing? I think that there maybe are many reasons for that. Uh, historically, um, before it became sort of a, a profession that uh, had a license attributed to it, um, there were uh, there was there's a sort of a long history of African Americans being uh, um, tradespeople, working as masons, um, in sort of allied trades around architecture. Once architecture became a sort of a licensed profession that required um, a certain sort of uh, 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 training and schooling, that then became a bit of a barrier. Mm -hmm. um, as it stands now, in contemporary times, education, the education of architects is actually quite expensive. Um, the AIA, ACSA, and all of the sort of lead um, architectural organizations have been working very hard in recent years to try to undo some of the, those barriers, but 
generally speaking, um, people go into professions that they know about. And if you pool an average um, African-American student, he or she may not be as, may not have, may not know an, an architect personally. Mm -hmm. So that becomes a factor. So the, and then it becomes a sort of perpetual, self-perpetuating cycle. Um, when you get into architectural school, you'll find that you don't see many arch architectural, archi uh, you don't see many <coughs> African-American architects mentioned in the, in the canon. And so it becomes a sort of self-perpetuating cycle of a lack of visibility, mm -hmm. uh, contributing to a lack of awareness of the profession, I think. So I know some of your research is, is on the history of um, the training of yes. uh, African-American architects. And um, tell us a little bit about that research and, and what you discovered in doing that research. So I worked with a colleague um, who's now the uh, dean at uh, Florida A&M University's program of architecture there. And um, in that work, we were looking at the early programs of Tuskegee uh, and Howard University mm -hmm. and looking at their beginning and their initial starts um, because they are two of the earliest programs at HBCU universities. And the reason why we felt it was important to look at HBCU programs of architecture is because mm -hmm. while they only make up 5% of the programs of architecture in our nation, they tend to educate up to 30% of African-American students that uh, go on to become architects. Mm -hmm. And so that became really critical space and place for us, but we were really interested in their starts and also trying to resist the idea that these programs are actually quite similar. Mm -hmm. And they end up, we end up um, finding um, and sort of documenting that they are quite unique in their histories um, in their beginnings. So tell us a little bit about the differences between Tuskegee and, and Howard in this regard. Sure, Tuskegee was founded in 1892, so it's the earliest um, program. Um, it was, is located in a, in a rural environment. Um, so it's sort of physical context, it's um, ideological context. So in particular at an HBCU, um, what we would call racial uplift ideology now, mm -hmm. um, it belonged to some sort of a, a more of a tradition that followed along the lines of Booker T. Washington's ideas about um, social progress. Um, through economic means. Mm -hmm. And so those ideas about working with the hand um, in, in a very sort of pragmatic and practical and technical uh, way of, of, move, uh, of, of achieving knowledge and applying that to everyday life and then becoming prosperous, um, those found their way into the architecture program itself. Mm -hmm. So one of the very unique things about Tuskegee's early program is that many of the campuses on building, of the, on the, uh, many of the buildings on campus were actually designed by students and faculty. Mm -hmm. um, from the making of the bricks themselves mm -hmm. to the design of the buildings. Right. And so that philosophy about working with the hands, about um, the sort of self-efficiency, uh, right? Um, so sort of economic um, independence permeates the architectural program there. Mm -hmm. And so there's a much more emphasis on working with allied programs like um, brick masons and, and so on and so forth. So the engineering and more technical aspects of the building sciences mm -hmm. were more emphasized at the Tuskegee program. Mm -hmm. Later in 1911, Howard was founded. And as you know, it's in a very urban setting in Washington, D.C. Um, it, at the time, was the largest African-American community in the country. And so it had a very different context. Um, the sort of racial uplift ideology associated with Howard University is much more of the uh, sort of a classic Du Boisian idea of social progress. Um, um, and so in contrast to sort of the Booker T. Washington philosophy of economic independence first and then social advancement later, 
the idea was that no social progress now. There are affluent African Americans who are already prominent, who mm -hmm. who um, are ready to sort of demand certain rights immediately. And so that sort of professionalism, the idea of the noble architect, went hand in hand with black activism. Um, also, not being in a rural setting, the architects there and the, um, the professors, the architects there who were working there at the Howard program had the opportunity and had a, a community of people that could support their practice. Mm -hmm. They were not isolated in the way that the architects and teacher, teachers there at, uh, at uh, Tuskegee were. And so they sort of really come from two different points of view ideology, um, um, in terms of racial ideology, but also in terms of early architectural education, with one being much more like the, um, so all most architectural programs have their founding from European, European traditions versus, the, where it's the ger either the German traditions, um, English or French, and with the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, and so um, Howard was much more of like the Ecole de Beaux-Arts where mm -hmm. you would study drawing, um, and you would look at the theories behind work and styles, et cetera, versus the, um, Tuskegee program was much more the applied knowledge, applied building So sciences. at Howard, they weren't making the bricks. No, they were not they were making, making the, the bricks. bricks at Howard. No. And I'm, I also understand that, that in contrast to Tuskegee, where many of the buildings were designed by the students, that's mm -hmm. very, that's not the case at Howard, right? The, the management of Howard was, was not African-American, is that correct? Correct, correct. Um, well into its, pa uh, past its founding and well into its early years, even in the, into the architecture program, the sort of board of directors that ran Howard were predominantly white. Um, and so there was always a little bit of tension in its early founding between the fact that the, a lot of the teaching staff and the students were all African-American, but the overseers of the university were white. And so that, I think that lack of, that tension did not necessarily facilitate those, that kind of um, a scenario where the university would have been, the buildings on the university campus would be highly, would have uh, been integrated with the architectural program in the same way. Also, it wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. The architects who came to the Howard program could find work in the local African-American community. There was right. a, at its high point, there were over 300 African-American businesses around that sort of community and Howard University set in the hub of that community, mm -hmm. what we call the Shaw community now. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's just two different contexts, I think. Yeah. So you're also, you, you've also done a lot of research on Paul Revere Williams. Yes. Now, tell me, first of all, who was Paul Revere Williams? Paul Revere Williams is one of the most prolific architects in the 20th century um, here in the United States. A lot of his work, the majority of his work can be found on the West Coast, specifically LA and its surrounding areas. Uh, Paul Revere Williams, and this previous year, was um, um, awarded the, the 2017 Gold Medal hmm. from the AIA, which is the hmm. highest honor that you can receive. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's also, he was also an African-American ar architect, and he was the first uh, member of the American Institute of Architects, which is the leading professional group of architects, and he was the first fellow, African-American fellow of the American Institute of Architects. And, and his so career is very long. His first building is six, 1916 and until 73. Yes, extremely long, very successful, very prolific, and also very diverse. So his body of work ranges from residences, um, to community and civic buildings, to hospitals, to um, commercial facilities, to car dealerships, to hotels. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on. Mm -hmm. um, but I think he's best known for his residential work. Mm -hmm. And then also stylistically, the work is extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, he, I think sort of 
really helped to characterize that idea of LA as being this this place where you could see all sorts of architectural mm -hmm. styles and period mm -hmm. styles and types. And so if you were to grab any number of Paul Williams buildings and line them up one next to another, it, it may be difficult to huh, assign without a careful a careful eye to know that this was his work because he was so adept at working through a series of different architectural styles. So I know that the the the, the amount of his work is mind-blowing. It's like a thousand projects, something like a thousand. And you don't, we don't even really know all of them. Exactly. Is that correct? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I saw, I think there's 550 that you enumerate on your website, and that's, not, that's like half of them. Yes, yeah. it's possibly not even half. <laughs> so, I mean, it's thought, people have thrown the number out, that it's, it's thought that maybe that he, uh, uh, is associated with the design of over 3,000 buildings wow. over the course Incredible. of his career. So you've said a little bit about his, his career. You, one of your projects is this um, tool, a career mapper about yes. his career. So tell us about that project. So that project is a is, is really a digital humanities project. It's the it's it was it came from my desire to understand in a mo more holistic way. Paul Williams' career, because one of the really unique things about his career is how long it spanned mm -hmm. and the diversity of his work. But in contrast to maybe the popular media associated with Paul Williams, he's always sort of referred to as the architect of the stars, uh -huh. his residential work associated with Hollywood architects mm -hmm. um, usually, is usually what comes out in front. So if you were to Google Paul, Paul R. Williams, you would definitely see the word Hollywood mm -hmm. <laughs> show up mm -hmm. and maybe architect to the stars. So I, but in looking at him more closely, I know that his career was much more diverse than that. So this, the idea of the career mapper is a digital humanities project and it's really a tool. It's not so much a warehouse of information, it really is a tool meant for researchers who are interested in Williams to be able to kind of map out his built works that I, that, that I'm aware of mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. geographically over time and also with filters that allow you to look at his clientele type mm -hmm. as well as the building types mm -hmm. to begin to understand this, the, the sort of patterns of his career and to recreate that information because much, unfortunately much information about Williams has been lost. Mm -hmm. yes. And I know that you have an interest in expanding the, the uh, mapper so that it also includes distinctions about the style. Yes. So can you say a little bit, you said it's a very diverse style, is it possible to draw some general descriptions of the kind of <laughs> modes of his style? Sure, so a lot of his residential work, I mean, it spans from English tutor to Georgian mm -hmm. to, I mean, it's a lot of period style work, which mm -hmm. main, which really was not totally uncommon for the, the sort of 30s and 40s, mm -hmm. which a lot of his residential work belonged to mm -hmm. in those two decades, um, his most notable residential work, I should say. Um, and, but what you see consistently, so, um, I think that's a really interesting question because it also calls into question how we how we um, identify an architect, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And, and what's important about uh, the practice of architecture. Mm -hmm. And in this case, Williams, it's not so much the the style or the aesthetic mm -hmm. that comes out of the work; it is the sort of skillful way in which he achieves the design. So he's particularly skillful with proportions and scale. So despite mm -hmm. budgets, mm -hmm. so he has worked on mansions that from 16 rooms, 22 bathrooms, you know, these huge <laughs> mega mansions to very small homes. But what you find consistent throughout is a really careful attention to, to detail, hmm. um, 
a balance between ornamentation and large larger design moves, mm. really, really skillful attention to proportions and mm. scale, mm. site placement, and usually a really strong entry experience. Mm. And so some of those, they're, they're more principles, mm -hmm, I guess mm -hmm. you would say, mm -hmm. um, and approaches to design as opposed to um, stylistic moves, if you will. And so I think that that's what you see when you look at his entire body of work, because mm. his work can range from those period styles all the way to modernism. Mm. Interesting, interesting. So you, you mentioned that he's uh, referred to as the architect of the stars. Mm -hmm. How did he wind up do, uh, doing <laughs> as much work as he did in Hollywood? How did he get those, those jobs? I think that it, it can be attributed to many things. Talent, obviously, mm -hmm. um, but more so talent, hard work. And, and him, himself as an individual being extremely astute in terms of the social art of architectural practice mm -hmm. and business mm -hmm. and maintaining a certain flexibility and maintaining community connections. And so he was a great businessman, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really. He was a great businessman and he had a wonderful reputation with clients and also uh, his colleagues in the profession. So he became, it, there, there, there are all sorts of wonderful anecdotes about Williams, how he started out. He was not, he did not actually receive an architectural degree. Hmm. He sort of, he moved through a series of different training programs and was self-taught, mm -hmm. uh, which is not totally uncommon at that period mm -hmm. in time. Um, but he, you know, he sort of um, went out and was just persistent. He, in his early phases, he won a series of about nine competitions, design competitions, all around the small home. And I think that it was actually quite intentional because he then was able to sort of carve out a niche for himself as an expert in small home design, which kind of got his foot in the door mm -hmm. in terms of building a reputation for himself. And then that shifted into being an expert in, in sort of large home um, and sort of wealthy home design, <laughs> for, well, d design of homes for the wealthy mm -hmm. and then for the very wealthy. Very wealthy huh? And so um, from there, uh, then his the sort of the principles that I mentioned about that are sort of characteristic of his work um, are also became synonymous with his reputation as a designer. And so you would find people, um, uh, people would land commercial commissions that people where people would want to evoke that sense of comfort um, that you would find in William in a Williams Paul Williams design, the mm -hmm. sense of scale that you would find in a Paul Williams design through these other commissions. And he's from the Calif he's from California. Is that why all his work is there? Um, so that's where he grew up. Originally, Paul Williams is, I believe he was from Tennessee. His mm -hmm. parents were from Tennessee, but he, um, he was orphaned, I believe around the age of four. Hmm. Both of his parents contracted tuberculosis, and so he grew up with a foster parents um, and in the, Calif in the LA area. And so that's where he was from, and a lot of his work is there and in the surrounding area, as well as internationally. So are there some other African-American architects that um, you would uh, want to share that we should be aware of that we probably don't know? <laughs> Just, so, you know, a couple. So many. I mean, I think um, Phil Freelon. So I'm thinking of contemporary mm -hmm. architects. Yeah, yeah. Phil Freelon, I think, is an, is an architect that um, maybe um, in the profession people know of him, but probably outside of the profession, mm -hmm. maybe not as much. And mm -hmm. so some of the, he's done wonderful civic work around sort of cultural, um, what, what I would call cultural markers. Mm -hmm. um, so museums and cultural centers, et cetera. And so I think that that's one, if I had to say one, choose one, I think that that's one architect in particular. So I know that there's another project that you've completed or that, that's, that's sort of on hold, it's, which is the Freedom's Fortress project. Just tell us a little bit about that project. Sure. <coughs> 
Um, so I mentioned that I taught at Hampton University prior mm -hmm. to coming to the University of Oregon. And so there at Hampton, um, I was introduced to the local history surrounding um, the contraband decision um, during the Civil War. And so I, and I was not familiar with how significant of a role the location that I was in at Hampton University was to the Civil War mm -hmm. in regards to that decision. And so what became fascinating to me is that I'm in this place, I'm working in this place, I'm teaching in this place, and by place I mean that, that region and that area, and I couldn't find the physical markers of such a significant event mm -hmm. and story and narrative. And so um, I became fascinated with, so I teach visual communication, and so I'm really interested in visual communication tools, which mm -hmm. is also a part of why I, the visual digital humanities is interesting to me. But I became really interested in how to document this. How do you document the story in a spatial way? And so the, the sort of Dump Freedom's Fortress project mm -hmm. um, or is, and I is, was a collaboration originally with a professor there at the School of Journalism at Hampton University to try and document through a virtual storytelling of or recreation of the sites and places um, where this kind of contraband decision would have played out. Um, and so what I've done here at the University of Oregon is worked with a series of students to use um, VR technologies or augmented, uh, well, vi visual uh, VR technologies, I should say, virtual, not so much reality. virtual reality technologies to create and model three-dimensional spaces of different sites that within that narrative. So Fort Monroe, which sits right outside of Hampton, mm -hmm. um, the city of Hampton, um, the bank where the sort of camp for ins for people who would have they were no longer legally enslaved, but they, they clearly weren't free. Mm -hmm. They were often referred to as contraband, where were those human beings set up, a, set up um, life for themselves, a settlement for themselves, and which eventually gave way to rebuilding, so the sort of recreation and rebuilding of the downtown area of Hampton. Um, so we wanted to recreate what that site is like. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just not, there really wasn't a lot of visual information about it. And so we looked through the photos, we looked through what we could, and we tried to recreate it and take you through sort of a, a timeline of what that's like, um, what one could experience that using um, the sort of headwear associated mm -hmm. with uh, VR technologies mm -hmm. and really try to put one in that space. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of an ongoing project. <laughs> it's probably a lifelong project. <laughs> uh, but we do have a, sort of our first prototype of what that's like. Okay. <laughs> so you're, you, as in addition to being a, a scholar, you are a teacher, as you were just alluding yes. to. Tell us a little bit about the, you've already begun to say a little bit about your approach to teaching <laughs> architecture, but say a little bit more about that. So m m I approach te the, te so I think the way that I teach architecture is directly related to my original interest in architecture. I became ar interested in architecture because of the unique way that architects um, make decisions through using visual tools. Mm -hmm. And so I teach some of the visual communications uh, classes that are in um, our curriculum. And I also teach and coordinate design studios. But I approach it from the idea that the visual tools that we use are actual uh, actual extensions of our cognitive uh, processes. And so the drawings are just artifacts of our thought process. And so that becomes, that's sort of the framework in which I approach, approach design. So it's not so much just always the product, but it's how you shaped your thinking about that product over time in your mind. So mm -hmm. I know that one of the, the the um, tools or the things that you teach about is digital collage. Yes. Um, <laughs> How does digital collage fit in with architecture? I mean, I'm, we're not talking <laughs> about abstract, you know, paintings right. here, right? Right. So, say a little bit about that. Well, 
digital collage, when I say digital collage, I'm referring to the idea that we, that architects and, and anyone in the design process who's designing the built environment, um, that we're really envisioning places that don't exist yet. Mm -hmm. And we're doing that through a lens of our own experience. Um, and we're drawing from associations in the world around us. And I think collage is the perfect instrument and tool mm -hmm. um, to allow one to layer that sort of information. And I tend to be much more interested when I work with my students mm -hmm. about how they shaped an idea and also their own awareness of the lenses, the, the lens through which they're looking at the world when they are coming up with their designs mm -hmm. than sort of, a, sort of a, a photorealistic rendering at the end because I think the, 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 the first communicates much more. Um, and so digital collage really, I think, is this place that allows for um, so, um, sort of a multiplicity of readings of space and place and narrative um, mm. as opposed to hyper photorealistic renderings where sort of what you see is what you get, mm -hmm. right? And I think it just is, it allows for much more reinterpretation and discussion, which is really important in the design process and in the education of designers. Oh, fascinating, um, fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're working, any new projects, new things that you're working on? Um, well, I received a, a huge amount of information that I'm hoping to incorporate into the PR, the Paul Revere Williams uh, career map, mm -hmm. uh, career mapper, and so I'm looking to update that, and so I'm really excited about that, excited about that project. Um, and so I think that's where my big focus is on and now. So mm -hmm. I just have a couple of minutes left. I think this will be my last question. Um, You've just been promoted to an associate professor. Yes. <laughs> You've been at the university for a number of years now. Um, what was it that attracted you to the University of Oregon? What is it about University of Oregon or about our architecture program that was appealing to you? Well, funny enough, one of your retired professors in our department is his work is the work that I built my uh, thesis on as huh. a graduate student around Daniel Herbert. Oh, he really? did a lot of work around cognition huh. and the design process. Hmm. And then we also have uh, Nancy Chang, who's also an esteemed professor here, who works in the design process around issues of, of relating to design and visual communication. So yeah. I was uh, very excited about the community that would, that supported that type of investigation. Also the values that are here in the program, um, the architecture program here around sustainability, um, I think that those values are not, I, I say values very specifically because they manifest themselves not just in te technical building design, mm -hmm. but also their approach to how you deal with people and community. And that is very, very attractive to me. Um, and so those are some of the main reasons that I found a home here. And I know that you, you're you educated in HBCU, mm -hmm. you begin your career at an HBCU. <laughs> Um, we obviously the University of Oregon is not. Yes, not. So <laughs> what, has that been a challenge, or do you see that as an opportunity? It's been an opportunity. I mean, it's been quite a transition. It's very different, very different needs that students have, particularly mm -hmm. students of color. Mm -hmm. um, do you get so, a, a number of students of color in your classes? No, mm -hmm. not not so much. Mm -hmm. Not so much. Mm -hmm. I think um, our program suffers in the way that a lot of other architecture programs across the country suffers mm -hmm. at majority institutions, where there are, are not as many people of color there. As, as we, I think we all would like to see. Um, and so, in some ways, the students that are there, their needs become amplified. Um, their needs for support um, and their needs uh, for mentorship and connection become amplified. And so, in some ways, being here at the University of Oregon, I feel much more um, plugged in and much more um, able to, to make an impact mm -hmm. with those students that are here um, because the need is greater. 
they need is greater. Well, I think on that note, um, I'd like to thank you so much, Daisy, for taking the time with, to speak with us today. And again, congratulations on the promotion. Thank you, it's a pleasure. I've been speaking with Daisy Elise Williams, Associate Professor of Architecture at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.